If you'll open with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 8 this morning, we're going to continue uh, looking at this passage of Scripture that we started last week where Jesus brings peace. Jesus bringing peace to three different situations. Uh, We looked at the first one last week where Jesus brought peace in the midst of a storm. We're looking at two more, God willing, this morning. So Matthew chapter 8, and starting here in verse 23, it says, When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, And there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And when he came to the other side of the country, the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men, And behold, all the city came out to meet meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Now here in in chapter 9, verse 1, and getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic laying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, Your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowds saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts through it this morning. God, as we come to the pages of Scripture, as we come to the words written here, Lord, we believe and we affirm that these are not merely the words of men, but that they are truly the words of God. They are your words, inspired, Lord, to show us, to reveal to us yourself, to reveal to us who we are, to reveal to us our great need, just like this paralytic man, our great need is to have our sins forgiven. And your word reveals to us how we may be restored, how we may have peace with you, and how we might walk in that peace every day. 
I pray that you would help us to do that today. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. We see here in these three stories that Jesus brings peace to each one of these situations. Peace in the midst of a storm, peace in the cemetery, as it were, with these demon-possessed men, and peace in the soul. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it tells us that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that he himself is our peace. And that he has made peace between us and God. That he has reconciled us to God. In the story of the peace in the storm, we we looked at that one last week. And we saw that there was a great storm. We saw that after Jesus rebuked the winds and the waves, that there was a great calm. And the only thing small in this story was his disciples' faith. And that he rebuked not only the storm, but he rebuked the disciples for their lack of faith, their lack of trust in Christ. When they woke up, Jesus, no doubt they were hoping that he would pitch in, that he would help them row, that he would get on board with helping them do what they were doing. But that isn't exactly what he did, is it? When Jesus woke up, instead of helping them do what they were doing, first he rebukes them. Before he even gets to the storm, he he has a rebuke for his disciples. And the subtle irony here is, in verse 27, the end of verse 27, it says, when they saw it, they marveled. They were filled with fear. In Mark and Luke's gospel, it tells us that way, that they were filled with fear, that they were more afraid at what Jesus had just done. That they were filled with more fear of Christ than they were the storm. Because it's one thing to be uh, in the hands of a storm. It's one thing to be at the winds, the whims of the winds and the wave. It's another thing to be in the presence of the one who controls those very things. And that's what was revealed to them in that moment. What sort of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey them? You see, they had expected Jesus just to pitch in, but to their astonishment. And can you imagine? Just put yourself in their shoes for a moment. That Jesus wakes up and he speaks to the wind, he speaks to the waves, and they obey him. How shocking that must have been. How terrifying that must have been. And this man is in our boat and we're following him. We're walking with him. Who is this? That's the question. What sort of man is this? And so when the story began, they were afraid of the storm. But when it ends, they're afraid of Christ. Matthew immediately takes us now to this second story of Jesus going, arriving at the shore, and and he comes, and and he's here in this cemetery where these two demoniac men, these men possessed by demons, come and meet Jesus there. Now, you might notice, and and this question was asked to me this week, and I figure if, if a couple people are... Wondering, maybe there's more, so let's answer it here. 
Why is it that Matthew tells us that there's two demon-possessed men, but in Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, it tells us that there's only, it only tells us of, of one demon-possessed man. If you'll flip with me over to Mark's gospel, uh, chapter 5, stay, keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 8 because we're going to come back, but Mark's gospel, chapter 5, he tells us this story, the same story, and it's Mark's telling of it. Now, as we look at it, just, just looking at it, the, the, the amount of text, we can see that Mark's is more than two times the amount of text, the amount of words spent on this passage. So, so Mark here is, is telling us the same story, but he's giving us his perspective and his uh, focus is on something else. And so if you look at Mark chapter 5, uh, it, it tells the same introduction. But then in verse 2, it says, uh, when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Jesus asked the man, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside and they began uh, they begged him, saying, send us into the pigs and let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out, entered the pigs. The herd, numbering 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and they were drowned. Verse 14, the herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had just happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed with demons begged Jesus that he might go with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, that's the region of ten cities, how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marvel. And so we can see here the, the contrast between these two stories. They're telling the same event. There is two demon-possessed men. The demons recognize who Jesus is, calling upon him as the Son of God begging him not to be confined to the shackles and the chains of hell, but to be sent off into these pigs, which Jesus allows them to do, and the pigs rush down into the sea and are drowned. The, the, the townspeople come out, they see what has happened, they are filled with great fear, and they beg Jesus uh, 
to leave. They both tell the same story. But Luke and Mark are drawing the emphasis. They're they're putting the emphasis not on the fact that there was two demon-possessed men, but putting the emphasis specifically on one of them. One of them who was especially tormented. And he gives us many more details about this one specific man in particular. How he had to be restrained with chains. Matthew doesn't mention that. How that he would cut himself. How that no one could subdue him. How he would break the chains. How he was running around naked. How he was howling at the moon. How he was inflicting harm upon himself. These are all details that Mark and Luke give us. Matthew doesn't give us any of these. But he does let us know that there was two of them. And so I think that Mark and Luke are trying to show us and let us know the particular way in which one of them especially had been affected. And how Jesus had touched him in such a profound way that he even wanted to follow Jesus. And so they're telling the same story, but they're giving their different perspectives. And this brings into focus the larger discussion on synthesizing the four different gospels that we have in our Bibles. We have four different stories that tell the account of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of them told by an individual, all of them giving to us their account. And all throughout the four different accounts, these four Gospels, there are these small variances in their stories. Here we can see one is an obvious one. Matthew says there was two demons, but Mark and Luke doesn't mention a a second demoniac man. Now we need to understand something. That just because Mark and Luke don't mention a second demoniac, it does not mean that there was not a second one. It doesn't mean that there wasn't one. It simply means that they weren't emphasizing that part of the story. And so we need to pay attention to these details and and we need to think through them critically. Now some people point to these variances And they point them out as a negative. They they say, look, the Bible can't be trusted. Look, there's differences in these accounts. If they were telling, if it was true, it would be the same at every place, at every point. And so they use this as a negative to try to discount the inspiration of Scripture and the authority of Scripture. But I want to show you that, in fact, these variances are not a negative But truly, they are a positive. When I teach on these in KBI, I share the story of Harvard law professor who was an attorney. His name is Simon Greenleaf. Simon Greenleaf, this Harvard law professor, was an atheist. He hated the teaching of the Bible and he hated Christ. And so he himself set out to disprove the biblical testimony that we have concerning Christ, the four Gospels. And he was certain that as a law professor, as he examined these four testimonies about Christ, that through his careful examination, 
that through the internal witness of the Gospels, that he could, in fact, disprove what he believed to be the myths at the heart of Christianity. And so this legal scholar came as he studied the text. What in fact happened is he came to the conclusion that the witnesses, the eyewitness accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, far from being discredited, were in fact reliable. And he came to believe that the resurrection of Christ actually happened and that it was a historical event. He began the journey as an atheist, but after examining the witnesses of the Gospels and holding them up to the scrutiny of a courtroom examination, he himself became a Christian. It's a powerful testimony. And hear what he says from his book. He wrote a book on it. It's called The Testimony of the Evangelist. You can pick it up. You can read it for yourself. The Testimony of the Evangelist by Simon Greenleaf. But I want to read you a quote from the book that summarizes his findings. He says, and I quote, The character of their narratives is like that of all other true witnesses containing substantial truth under circumstantial variety. There is enough discrepancy to show that there could be no previous concert among them. And at the same time, such substantial agreement as to show that they were all independent narrators of the same great transaction as the events actually occurred. What he's saying is that all of these small variations are what you would expect to see from four different eyewitness accounts of the same testimonies, of the same event. He's saying what what we find here is exactly what you would hope to find from people who are giving a testimony in court. And he goes on to explain that when two or more testimonies match up perfectly, it shows that the witnesses had conspired together to get their story straight. That when the stories align perfectly at every point and on every detail, he says, you know that they are lying because they've gone together and ironed out all of the differences. But in fact, what we find is that the gospel writers didn't plot and they didn't scheme together to iron out their story. Instead, therefore, we should be like Greenleaf and we should conclude with great confidence that what they saw, they wrote. And so we can be comforted that though there are these small variations they all tell the same story about Jesus. All of the Gospels, though they have small differences in variety, they all maintain the same central Gospel truths, that Jesus is divine in his nature, that he is the Son of God, that he is Emmanuel, God with us, that he has divine power over nature, that he performed incredible miracles, signs pointing to his divine nature, that he died a death on the cross, atoning for our sin, 
And most importantly, all four of the Gospels unanimously proclaim that Jesus is no longer dead, but that he rose on the third day. Amen. So though there are these small differences, those are what we should expect to find from true eyewitness accounts. And what is significant is not where they are different, but where they are the same. And they, are, they, they, they tell to us the same story and the same central truths about Jesus. What I also find interesting here is when Jesus approaches the demons, both in uh, Mark 5 and in Luke 8 and then back here in Matthew chapter 8, when Jesus approaches them, they recognize Jesus for who he is. Though the disciples are still perplexed, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? The demons know exactly who this is. Who are you? Why are you here, O son of God? They say to him in Matthew 8, have you come here to torment us before the time? They recognize that there is coming a day, a day of judgment, where their time here on the earth is going to come to an end. And they are going to be cast into that place of outer darkness. They're going to be cast into that place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, hell, that is prepared for the devil and his demons. And they recognize that it's not yet that time and they're curious why the Son of God is there among them. They don't know what his plan is. They don't know that he's about to redeem humanity. The demons recognize Jesus for who he is. James mentions this in James chapter 2, verse 19. James says, the demons believe and shudder. But James uses this to say that we must not only have faith, but we must also have works. That faith without works is dead. And so James points to the demons and, you, and, and he says, you say you believe in God? Yeah, so what? The demons believe too. The difference is the demons don't submit to Christ. They don't submit to God. The demons have belief, but they don't have works. So it's not, it's not simply that we believe upon Christ and then we just live our life any way that we want, but Christ and, and the demands of faith demand that we obey him if we truly believe in him. So the, the demons recognize Jesus for who he is, but they don't submit to him, they don't obey him. You know, what we see of this man and these two men they're, they're, they're tormented by the devil. And that's what the devil will get you. Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Right. If you think that going your own way and following your own path is the way to happiness, joy, and peace, you are severely mistaken. Christ is the Prince of Peace. He, he is the only way to life and life eternal. He's the only way to having peace in your soul and peace in your heart, to having joy and fulfillment. To, to not follow Christ is to fall into the snares of the devil 
And we see here in these men who were oppressed by the devil and filled with these demon spirits where that gets you. They're at the lowest of the low. And we read here that society could do nothing for them. You see, when you're possessed by the devil, there's only so much that people can do for you in the natural realm. There's only so much help you can get. Amen. There truly is a spiritual need that we all have. The best that society could do for them is to isolate them from the rest of the community. To, to put them out, to put them out in the tombs, to try and chain them up, to try and get them away from those who were healthy. That's really the best that society can do for you. But what Christ can do for you, what Christ can bring to you is healing and wholeness and restoration and soundness of mind and joy and peace and forgiveness. This is what Christ brings. Amen. And so if you find yourself bound, if you find yourself addicted, if you find yourself discontented, do not look to society to fix your problems. Do not look to politics to solve your problems. To quote President Reagan, the most scary words in the whole English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. The, the government cannot help you. The government can't, again to quote Reagan, the government cannot solve your problems. The government is the part of the problem. We, we can't look to society. It's society's fault the way that I am. No, it's sin. The issue is sin. The issue is the spiritual condition of your heart. And only Jesus can set you free from sin. Only Jesus can set you free from the power of the devil. And that's what he does here for these two demon-possessed men. And he turns them from terrors. They were a terror to the community. And Jesus sends one of them, at least we know, back. To not be a terror, but to be a preacher who goes and begins to proclaim the goodness of God. L listen, there is no limit. Hear me in this. There is no limit to what God can do with a life that is fully surrendered to him. You, you might say, well, you don't understand what I've gone through. You don't understand my past. Listen, I, I don't, and I don't know your past, but God does. And I have a hard time believing that you were in as bad as, that you right now are in a bad a state as these guys. You didn't arrive here today from waking up in the cemetery. You, you haven't been roaming the streets naked, bound in chains. So, so wh wherever you're coming from, it's not as low as this guy was. And this guy in a moment, in, a, in, a, in, in one encounter with Jesus, was totally transformed to be a preacher. Of the good news. And what God has done for him, let me tell you, he will do 
for you. He is no respecter of persons. Amen. And so we see here the community comes out and they see what has happened and they, shockingly to us, beg Jesus to leave. And as Mark and Luke tell us, they are afraid. They are filled with fear. Luke says that they were seized with great fear. They, they knew what to do with the demoniac. We'll just chain this guy up and send him out into the cemetery. The walking dead, if you will. They didn't know what to do with the man who called dead people back to life. That, that, that was too much for them. And so they begged him to leave their region. And Jesus does. He gets back in the boat and he heads back to his hometown. Which leads us here to this third story. So peace in the storm, peace in the cemetery. And here this third story is peace in the soul. Jesus comes to his hometown. There's a group of people, friends, that bring to him a paralytic, a man who could not walk. He couldn't get there on his own strength. He had to have people who carried him, laying on a bed, to Jesus. And it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Upon hearing this, the scribes, they say he's committed blasphemy. Because who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus, it says, he knows their thoughts. And he says to them that their thoughts are evil. What I find fascinating here, it, there's so much irony in these stories, the scribes are accusing in their hearts Jesus of committing blasphemy, but by doing that, it is they themselves who are blaspheming God. It's amazing. It's amazing. Which just goes to show to you the depths of our spiritual blindness. The, 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 the depths of the sinful heart of man that we can be so deceived and so self-deceived that we don't even see in ourselves how sinful we truly are. This is why James again speaks of the word of God like a mirror. That it's the word of God that when we read it, it exposes who we really are. It exposes that, that sin in our life. The author of Hebrews says that the word of God is sharp like a two-edged sword. It cuts and it cuts deep. It's that mirror. It, it shows us the truth. And there in front of them is the truth personified, Jesus, the truth in the flesh. And he speaks to them and he says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to rise and walk? Well, it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven because how do we know if that truly happened? 
It's easy to say that. And so Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man, again using this royal, kingly, divine title and assigning it to himself from Daniel chapter 7, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I'm going to heal this man. And so he says to him, rise and walk. I find it interesting that Jesus forgives this man's sin before he heals his body. He was brought to Jesus so that Jesus might touch his body and be healed. But Jesus, upon it says, seeing their faith, when he saw their faith, he said to him, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. We would look at this man and we would look at this man who was a paralytic, who was lame, and we would say his most pressing need, his most immediate need is to have his legs restored, to have his body healed. Jesus looks at this man and he recognizes this man's body is not his most pressing need. This man's soul is his most pressing need need his his sins being forgiven and so Jesus addresses his most pressing need first it says that he sees their faith that he knows their thoughts and likewise it is with us Jesus sees our faith Jesus knows what's in our hearts he knows the thoughts that we think in our mind and Jesus likewise has the power to forgive sins for those who come to him in faith. And and this same progression that Jesus does for this man, healing first his soul and healing then his body, is prophetic in a sense of the progression that all of us will go through in this life. Where when we come to Christ in faith, we will have our sins forgiven. And then on that last day, when Christ returns, the Bible says that we will be like he is, that just as Jesus rose from the dead with a new body, a glorified body, so we too on that last day will receive a new body, will receive a glorified body will receive a perfected body. Christ came in his first coming to deal with and to address our most pressing need to have our sins forgiven. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18, he says, Though your sins be as scarlet, I will wash you and make you white as snow. Christ has the power to forgive sins for all who come to him in faith. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Our sins, which are filthy rags before a holy God, Our righteousness, 
which are as filthy rags before a holy God. If we confess before him, we will receive cleansing. We will receive washing. We will receive healing. We will receive wholeness. We will receive peace with God. Peace with God. The the pathway to peace with God, to wholeness in our soul, is confession and repentance in faith. Confessing our sins and repenting in faith to Christ. This is what we are all called on to do. This is the gospel message. Repent of your sins and believe upon Christ. You see, all of us have a sin problem. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all transgressed God's righteous law and God's righteous standard. The law of God can be summarized in loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. And guess what? We've all failed at that. Not a one of us even today in this place has loved God the way he should be loved. Not a one of us for one moment in our life have ever loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have all transgressed God's law. We can look to his Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You shall not form and fashion for yourself an idol. Well, guess what? I have pursued other things more than God. Not a one of us in here is not, every one of us in here has failed to keep that commandment. We've placed ourselves before God. We've placed our wants before God. We've bowed down to other things, maybe not physically, but in our hearts, committing adultery. We've all broken and failed to keep the Sabbath. We've all dishonored our parents, disobeyed our parents. You might say, well, I've never committed adultery, but Jesus says if you looked at a person lustfully in your heart that you've committed adultery there. We've all done that. You might say, I've never murdered anybody. I've never killed anybody. But Jesus says that commandment's not so much, not only about murdering somebody, but about the state of your heart. And if you've ever hated someone or been angry with someone, that you've committed murder in your heart. We've all in one way, shape, or form robbed someone else, stolen from someone else. We've all lied, borne false witness. We've all coveted, wanting what somebody else has. Listen, we are all sinners. We have a sin problem. The Bible tells us that God is not like that. That God is holy. He is other. He is separated. He is radiant in his glory. That that God cannot and will not tolerate sin which is rebellion against him and everything that is good and righteous and that we in our sin are are enemies of God and that in our sin we are evil and wicked. 
The psalm I opened with this morning, Psalm 67, talks about how the wicked, how the evil will melt like wax before God who is holy. God who burns brighter than the glory of a thousand suns. Sin cannot be present in his midst. And so how are we to to have fellowship with this one who is a consuming fire? This is why at the end of each one of these stories, all of them are afraid. The disciples are filled with fear. The the, the town that, that surrounded the tomb The townspeople were filled with fear. They asked Jesus to leave. At the end of the story here where Jesus heals the paralytic, the crowd saw it and they were afraid. All of them, Jesus, in all of these stories, Jesus brings peace. But in the end, they're all filled with fear because they recognize they are in the presence of the holiness of God. And that is what made them afraid, was there was a revelation, there was an unveiling. Though Jesus in his incarnation was veiled in human flesh, there were these moments where his glory, his holiness, his all-consuming glory was revealed in those moments. And that blazing glory in those moments shone a spotlight on the sinfulness of the people who were present. It's like when Peter saw the great miracle that Jesus did of all of the fish being caught. When Peter gets to the shore, he falls on his knees before Jesus and he begs Jesus to leave. He says, depart from me because I am a sinful man. You you see, sin cannot exist in the presence of a holy God without being crushed and consumed. And so this is why the prophet Isaiah says it pleased the Lord to crush him. That Christ on the cross bore in his body our sin, our law breaking, all of our lies, all of our deceit, all of our idolatry, all of our lust, all of our hatred, all of our anger. He bore it in his body, on that cursed tree. That that is why we celebrate Good Friday, and that is why we call it good, even though it was the most unjust thing that had ever been done. The perfect man executed as a heinous criminal. And as he hung there, as he bled, as he died Our sin, my sin, your sin was laid upon him. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all so that we can be ushered in to his presence, so that we can have fellowship with God, so that we can have peace with God, that we can have the peace that only Christ brings. We all have a sin problem. The question is, what are you going to do with yours? If you ignore it, if you choose to to try to pretend it doesn't exist, it's like ignoring a cancer in your bones. It will consume you and it will destroy you. 
If you try only to suppress it, it will just kill you and destroy your soul at a slower pace. If you try to overcome sin in your own strength, that is simply a surefire recipe for disaster. We cannot do it in our own strength and in our own power. No, the only remedy for sin, hear this, the only remedy for sin is death. The only remedy for sin is death. And the payment for sin is death. And this is why Christ died. Christ died. The the sinless, with our sin upon him, he died. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The only remedy for sin is death. And so therefore Christ died for our sins. But he rose again. To give us new life. The cross is the picture of him dying for sin. The empty tomb is the picture of the new life that we have in him. And hear me in this. If you are in Christ, you too have died to sin and been risen in Christ. What are you going to do with your sin problem? The pathway to wholeness, the pathway to healing is confession and repentance. Repentance means turning from. So we come to Christ and we confess, I am a sinner. I have sinned this week. I have done this this week. I have, I have did this. I did that. I confess my sin before you, God. And I confess today that I am turning from that and I am turning to the cross of Christ, which is my only hope. There is no other hope outside the cross of Christ because there is no other way for our sins to be forgiven or dealt with. Christ is our only hope. The cross is our only comfort. And so it is to the cross of Christ that we as guilty under the law sinners cling to it we cling to that cross but in that we find life and in that we find hope and in that we find that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and so in that we find that we are welcomed into the throne room of God we are welcomed to have peace with God and fellowship with God because of what Christ has done for us And so that even as we struggle, even as we endeavor to continue to live out this life in this mortal body of flesh, we find, as Isaiah says, that he gives power to the weak and him who has no might, he increases strength. If you find here today that you are like this paralytic man, weak, unable to walk, unable to run, unable to live for Christ, Turn to Christ in faith. Stop looking to anyone and everyone else to solve and to fix your problems. Your problem is sin. And Christ is the only remedy for sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is to you that we turn in faith. 
Lord, as we even now prepare our hearts to receive your communion, prepare our hearts to receive the bread and the juice, we remind ourselves, we do this in remembrance of you and the price that you paid to redeem our lives. Lord, we, we don't do this as some dead, dry ritual, but Lord, we do this confessing our sins before you. We do this with repentance in our hearts, turning from that sin and turning and looking to you in faith, Jesus, our only hope. God, I thank you that the table is open this morning, that you welcome all who come in faith today. You welcome all who come trusting not in their own righteousness, which we know is filthy rags, but trusting only in the perfect righteousness that you bring. Lord, I thank you that you welcome us today, guilty as we are, condemned under the law, but forgiven today by your work for us on the cross. Lord, we come today as forgiven, blood-bought saints of God. We come today in faith, reminding ourselves, stirring our hearts, stirring our affections, stirring up our great love for you because you first loved us. We're reminded of your love and your grace this morning that you pour out, that you lavish upon us. Lord, undeserving as we are, thankful in our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.